could you imagine being, you know, 21 years of age, a young man, your whole life to look forward to, and standing in a courtroom, accused of probably the most heinous crime ever, rape and murder, and a judge with evidence, allegedly, that puts you at the scene of the crime, hits the hammer and says, I sentence you to life in prison and execution. The death sentence. And imagine spending 22 years of your life in jail telling everybody that you didn't do it. And I know they say every prisoner says they didn't do it, but you genuinely didn't do it. Only to be found out in the end that you actually were innocent after 22 years. How could you even re-enter society? The world would have changed while you were in there. And the frustration of telling everybody that you were innocent, knowing that you'd done nothing wrong, but you face death by execution. Well, one man that did do that is Nick Yaris, and he joins me on the line. Nick, you're on Classic Kids. How are you doing, Nick? How you doing, brother? It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's wonderful. Nick, you know, I find you hugely inspirational. I spoke to you going back about two years, it must be two years ago now. Yeah. And I found the interview hugely inspirational, and we've got a kind of new audience now and everything, so I'd love to go back over the whole thing again, because I think it's, a, it's not a wonderful story for you, obviously, because you had to live this. But for people who are listening to it, it's not only intriguing, I'm sure people are wondering how you managed to get through your life. And let's go right back to the start. If you possibly okay, can. And yeah, I, yeah, go ahead. I would, I, would, I would first and foremost say to everyone listening that I'm, I'm very grateful. My grandmother came from Ireland, as you know now, and I always had such a lovely feeling in my heart. In fact, Laura and I visited Dublin when we did television shows there, and to walk around Trinity College was a real blessing for us. Mm-hmm. And I'm really grateful that you have so many new listeners that I can tell my story to, because it is something that I'm actually proud of being able to be the survivor of. And one of the things that I do this for is a lot of men go through struggles and no one's going to recognize them, but we all have to be the hero of our story. And it's without accolade that so many good men go through trials and tribulations and I'm given the blessing to speak. And so I take that as an honor. And I'm very grateful to be on your show again. And, and, I'm, and I'm very grateful to have you on the show, Nick. And I'm very grateful that you are in a position now where you can actually tell your story and tell others the experience that you went through. And this, I suppose, if I could take you right back, Nick, this started from your childhood because you, your upbringing in itself. I mean, when you were seven years of age, you were sexually assaulted. What was your, yeah, it's, it's, what was your life like? Thing. All right. So in 1968, the world was... Uh, beautifully alive to most of America until um, that year with all the chaos that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, and there was rioting in the streets and everything. And I was just a little schoolboy on my way home one day in Philadelphia where I lived with my parents, and I had three older sisters and an older brother and a younger brother. And my best companion in life was a dog named Jocko a little black poodle. And I was allowed because I had to go to the dentist that day to be off from school, but I was in my school clothing and my mother told me I could go out and play as long as I didn't make Mm -hmm. a mess of my clothing. And as I ran off happily with my little companion, a man that was down in the woods uh, assaulted me, like you said. And the terrible thing was he uh, hit me in the head with a field stone 
And in the aftermath, I developed what is called aphasia, which is a brain injury or an organic injury that can happen where someone has a problem throughout the rest of their life um, processing language. So that was you caused by a it. swelling of the brain, probably, when you, when you got a belt. Yeah. yeah, that's why I had to have correct... Yeah, my, I developed myopsy. I had to wear eyeglasses to correct my vision. I went from being right-handed to left-handed. It was a lot of serious trauma, and I made it worse by keeping the secret because I was so fearful of this man. And did you not tell and anybody? Did, who did you tell? I didn't. I didn't tell my parents until I was 24 years old. And it's a shame because their immediate response was, oh, thank God, we thought we were horrible parents. We didn't do right by you. Mm -hmm. They thought that it was their failings that made me off the rails or it was them not being there enough for me when all along they were up against a beast that they couldn't compete with. And when you say you went off the rails, what age do you remember that your kind of life changed from being this innocent kid with a wonderful future? And obviously the sexual assault changed your life. But was there a point, say, in your young teens where you kind of said, I'm now mixing with the wrong people. I'm getting involved in car theft. I'm getting involved in things that I shouldn't be getting involved in. What age was that? It was during my teenage years that I was full on tear away with alcoholism, using drugs, hanging out with people I knew were going to commit crimes. I was so um, angry inside that I didn't have patience to let someone finish a sentence before I cut them off. I had no respect for anyone, no respect for the eloquence of speaking, no ability. So I was a junkie and a thief and a liar, and I hated myself. And it showed in every one of my mannerisms around others. And I'm sad to say I was a bully, a tyrant, a coward, and all those things that comes from being so hateful. And I lived a life of duality where I didn't know I had a brain injury. And it wasn't until I was uh, placed into confinement when I was 19 that I had examinations done on me. And they realized that I had a brain injury. And the worst thing that I could use to make it worse on myself was mm -hmm. drugs. And Okay, so initially you were involved in, uh, it was just a road traffic incident. You were stopped by the police in your car. You were, you were, well, you were in a stolen car at the time. And, and what happened? That, that was when the whole thing, when everything changed, when you were stopped in that stolen car. What happened that night? Everything changed in my life on December 20th, 1981. I'm 20 years old. I'm driving a stolen car. Three weeks previously, I had been beaten by the Philadelphia police for a similar incident when I see flashing blue and red lights behind me. In my panic, I pull over. I don't want to run. I don't want another beaten. I'm terrified. I know I'm in trouble. I know not to move, but I have aphasia. My brain seizes up. No rational thoughts take over from there. My heart takes this pounding in my chest. I'm high on amphetamines, and I've been drinking alcohol. Everything is pinpoint in my eyes, and I, I see it all unraveling slowly, but I cannot react, Neil. And it goes to this core fear inside of me when he starts beating on the window. The police officer come up to the car. The music's still blasting inside, but I don't have the faculties to realize the radio's still blasting. And the man rips the door open. He yanks me out from the car and puts his forearm on my throat. In that moment, I woke up. I started resisting. I was terrified of what was going to happen, and I pushed him away from me. He pulled out his club, and I took it out of his hand in an instant, and he couldn't believe it. 
When that happened, he reached for his firearm, and I grabbed his wrist, and I pushed downward, and the gun went off. And I swear that's how it all began. And, and that particular incident, nobody, you, he wasn't injured, you resisted arrest, um, and you ended up then with a violation for that, and you were, he, sent, you were sent to jail. That's what you would think, but it all twistedly stops. He gets the gun, he puts it under my chin, he puts me in the back seat. He takes a moment when he gets in the car to compose himself. I can still vividly see him do it. He looks at me in the rearview mirror, takes a large breath, grabs the radio and says, help, help, shots fired, help. He's, he's attacking me as if he's still being attacked at that moment that he's on the radio. And I'm in the back seat in the cage. And I'm thinking, what, what, what are you doing? And I realized that's what it was going to be. He was going to make up a lie. And he did when the other officers came. They drugged me from the car and they beat me up. They said, you bastard, you tried to kill our brother. I said, what are you talking about, man? And then they, they took me to jail. And I'm, I'm 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm standing next to the public defender. And he tells me that I'm being charged with the kidnapping of a police officer, attempted murder of a police officer, resisting arrest, aggravated assault, possession of a firearm, and all these things. I said, I didn't have a gun. He said, no, you took his gun off him. I said, what are you talking about? I couldn't believe the story. He said, look, it doesn't matter. You're facing life imprisonment anyway. So, and, and, did you, and, did you, and did you believe you were safer in prison at that point in your life? Because you just mentioned the fact you were on amphetamines, you were an alcoholic, you, by your own admission, you were a junkie. You had basically, although the details have come back to you now, and, yeah, I, and the, the way you describe it, Nick, is incredible, the way you describe the detail of this. And I know for listeners listening, they can almost imagine this. It's like watching a movie. And I could actually see that scene as you described it. So you're now in jail. Uh, when you're in jail, do you feel safer there because you were a tearaway? You, you were liable probably to get into a lot more trouble. Did you feel somewhat safer while you were in jail? My detail of recall comes because I lived with these incidents with no new sensory input every day. So I had to relive this thing every day for 8,057 days of solitary confinement before my release. And the feelings that I had wasn't that I was safe. It was that I was being torn asunder by a lie. I could accept my wrong. I could accept the fact that I was in a stolen vehicle, joyriding and high on drugs, probably worth going to jail for. But to say that I tried to murder you and to say that I had my gun, uh, that I had his gun and, and all this stuff, it was so humiliating that I went into this deep funk, and the only thing in my cell for days was a stupid newspaper. Okay, because and I, I want to clarify that. Everything. Absolutely, because I want to clarify, you were acquitted of that charge, for people listening who were interested in what happened. So you were actually acquitted of that, but that decision, yeah, of course, changed your life forever. That, I made a mess worse, didn't I now? You were in I jail with this newspaper, worse. you yeah. saw a story, and this was the story, of course, we're going to come to the death of Linda May Craig, but this was the, you saw this story in the newspaper of this woman you'd never met in your life. It's like sitting in the toilet and you can't help but reread the labels on the bottles. The newspaper was the only thing in my cell. It was the December 15th, 1981 newspaper. Sorry, the December 16th. And it was page three only because the front page had been missing. And on the headlines it said, Missing Woman, Police Are Baffled by Local Murder. And every time I read it, I turned my head away. 
None of this came to me, only sitting there in my solitude, thinking my life was over. It's four days before Christmas. I'm so humiliated by this lie. And this is so wrong that I said, in my head, what if, what if I made up a lie? What if I made up a lie to get out of this lie? And then this mantra began in my head of the same made-up story. And I sat there with no intention of going forward until an officer saw me on my bed. And I was sitting there just bedraggled with sorrow. And he said to me, what's wrong with you, sir, son? And I blurted it out now. I started telling this officer my story, and instead of him standing there and saying a word, he ran off like he had been hit by a ghost, went and got the sergeant, and they came back and took me to the sergeant's office. I repeated my story because now I'm hooked. So, and so, and the, story you gave them, the story you gave them was that you claimed that a guy called Jimmy, who's a former drug addict, uh, thought to be dead by overdose, was involved and, in the rape and the murder of this woman, right. Linda Craig. So you, th- you told them, right. you, you kind of told them, I know who did this. Yeah. And I said that, you know, I, I, I can help the police, right? And they said, oh, this is wonderful. They started praising me. They called the police officer who originally arrested me. And they spoke to him on the phone in front of me. He agreed to reduce my charges to resisting arrest. I would be sent back to Philadelphia for the stolen car where it was stolen from, and that would be it. In three days' time, I would be released on my own recognizance for helping them solve this case. I was taken out of solitary confinement and put into the general population in the prison. No longer was I in lockup, even though I still had these charges on me. So your lie was, so in your head, this lie is working. I'm doing well here. There's a good chance I'll get out if I keep this up. And I always had this fallback feeling. As soon as they find out the truth, I can say to them, now you can see that that officer lied. Mm. Because if it was real, he would never take off attempted murder charges and kidnapping from me and agree to let me out for just merely resisting his arrest. So I sat there waiting for this thinking it was going to work, and it didn't. They came back. But it was strange how it never played out in my head how it was, because they came, they got me from the prison, they took me to the Criminal Investigation Division headquarters in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. And this officer walks in, and he sits down across from me, and he goes, you killed Linda May Craig at 4.05 p.m. on December 15, 1981. She was leaving work. And you attacked her and knocked her into her car and murdered her. We know that you did this, Nick, and you wanted to tell us about it because we know that you're upset that you had a fight with your girlfriend. And that's why you went out and began stalking this poor woman, isn't it? That was the first thing. Was this based on the fact that they had found this guy, Jimmy, who you spoke about, but he actually wasn't dead. He was alive. And he had His an brother alibi. was the one that dry, died of the drug overdose, not him. And okay. he had an alibi. And that sank me with the police for his So they knew you were lying. So they knew you were lying. Yeah. So now they just assumed because you were lying about it, you must have done it. Right. And they said, we don't care what you have to say. We know you did it. And that's all we need. And after 13 hours of interrogation, they took me back to the prison and a sinister moment unfolded where the detective took my handcuffs off in the holding pens and gave me a big hug in front of these other prisoners, some of whom were in a motorcycle gang called the Pagans. And he gave me a hug saying, great work, Nick. We're going to kick some doors in now. 
And when he did that, these inmates looked at me like I was an informant who had just finished grassing up everyone, and now they were going out to arrest everyone. I went back that night, was put in my cell, and the next day moved over to the lockup again. And that was it. As soon as the doors opened, these inmates tried to blind me with a sharpened broom handle, and they threw bleach in my eyes and urine, and they tried to stab me up. And they kept calling me a rat, a rat, a rat. And I said to them, I'm not ratting on anybody. What are you talking about? I didn't understand. I was so naive that they just abused me, man. It was like I full on. Every time they opened the door, I would assault whoever I could because I wasn't going down like a chump. But there were so many of them, man. And, and, you, and, we, and to remind people, you, I mean, at this stage, you're only you know, 21 years of age. So you're, 20, you're, you're, a, you're 20 a, years old, man. You're a kid. I'm a kid, but I'm hard from the streets and I can fight. And that's my danger because I'm going to end up killing someone. So I hit a guy with a pool ball. I, I assaulted anybody that would get to, I, I was be, getting beating so much. I, I didn't care. And I, I actually liked it. I thought I deserved it. I hated myself. So after a week of being tortured by 53 men on the block, I hung myself. And a guard caught me hanging from the radiator, and he cut me down, and he told me I wasn't allowed to cheat the state of my punishment. Because he wanted you to go down. He wanted me to go to the electric chair and be electrocuted, and he, he laughed in my face. So, so what, my mother uh, what, was allowed uh, to come. At what point? This is what, what changed it all. Mm -hmm. At my what point? came to see me. I'm sorry. This, I, I do apologize. Right, I there's do a very no, no, there's a very slight delay between the calls, so sometimes when yes, I say sir, something, right. you don't hear it. But at what point did they then take you, um, you know, to to trial in 1981? You were taken to trial. So what point then? How long were you? How long more were you in there before they took you to trial? I was only incarcerated for four months before I went to the first trial and was found not guilty by a jury for the uh, attempted murder and kidnapping of the police officer, and that made them even angrier. The newspaper said that the jury should have been told about the murder charges against me and that they were all fools who were about to let this madman out. So the prosecutor who handled that original trial took over the next case, and he began seeking the death penalty against me. And he told me to my face that he was going to see to it that I was put to death. So you were then charged with the abduction, the rape, and the murder of Linda May Craig all based on an inmate's testimony who had burglarized the per prosecutor's home who was handling the matter. It's insane. Like, you can't make it up. It's worse than a Hollywood movie script. And what was that, what was that trial like? What was that trial like? I mean, do, do you remember standing in the dock? Do you remember the evidence being given against you? Do you remember the witnesses being called? Do, do you remember all that like it was yesterday? Yes, sir. I remember every vivid detail because... I watched in agony as a lie unfolded. You see, there was no physical evidence tying me to the crime other than the fact that the murderer had B-positive blood type. In 1982, that was the highest advancement of serology, and I have B-positive blood type. And because I had that, and so did the victim's husband, they thought it was me. And it's a shame because I had a three-day capital murder trial. That was it. Three days? And the reason, three days, because the judge told everyone that because that weekend began the 4th of July holiday weekend, he was going to see to it that the whole trial was over so they could get to go home and have hot dogs and fireworks. I've never heard of a murder trial lasting three days.
I know, sir. It was embarrassing, and I took it on the chin. I lived a dirty life, and I felt like this is my punishment from God. I stood tall. I looked at everyone when no one in the courtroom could look me in the eye. So his honor, Robert F. Kelly, gave me death in the electric chair plus 60 years. And he asked me if I had anything else to add. And I said, yes, sir, you can go to hell because the whole time you handed me my death sentence, you didn't have the nerve to look me in the eye. But in the newspaper, all they said was killer tells judge to go to hell. So they sent me to Huntington Prison as a reward for my big mouth, and they shut it for a long time. Man. And were the victim's family, the victim was Linda Craig's family there in court? Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember seeing? That, them? Do you remember was, seeing them? Yeah, she had a, she had two young boys, and her husband testified, and her whole family looked at me as if I was the epitome of hate uh, that deserved the hate, and. I felt bad for them. I, I, I didn't do it. I, I couldn't get angry at them. I took their sneers and their comments and their words humbly. I swear now, I never once looked at them with a nasty face. So you're sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, I'm a bad person, but I didn't do this. You Damn right. And, and you, Damn men- right. you mentioned a few minutes ago about your mom coming to see you in prison. When you, when you were eventually uh, trialed and found guilty and sentenced to death and 60 years, did your mom come to see you in prison in Huntington? Yeah, it was her birthday. I was sentenced to death on. So she came to prison and she told me, I don't care what you have to go through. Just come home to me as something decent. And I promised her after she had to come visit me in the county jail after I hung myself and inmates were laughing at her that I wouldn't hurt myself no more. They sent me to Huntington, and it was so brutal that the average lifespan in this prison was only five years. I would spend 12 years in a cell with no window. The first two years of my time, I was not allowed to speak in my cell. If you spoke, four men would rush in, and a nurse would stab you in the ass with a needle full of Thorazine, and you would lose your mind. And the, I mean, the lockup time. How long was it? Was it twenty-three hour lockup time? Did you get an hour out? You had twenty. Yeah, you were given euphemistically one hour in a dog kennel like cage, twenty feet by ten feet, and that was five times a week. And you were given three showers a week, and that was it. So basically, it was more than twenty-three hours a day because only five days of the week were out of that cell, possibly. Because people in Ireland are thinking of the jails we have here, which a lot of people describe almost as hotels. But they, this, we're talking about an American penitentiary, essentially. And these, I was in the original level five, the worst prison. Huntington State Prison in Pennsylvania was the only prison ever condemned by the United Nations for its active practices of torture. That's where I spent 12 years. And were you thinking to yourself okay, I'm going to spend a long time here? Or were you thinking to yourself, this is going to be over quicker than I think, and maybe maybe I'll get the chair quicker than, you know, 60 or 70 years? No, it all changed for me after the escape. See? Oh, yeah, I want to, I I ruined, want to get to that a I second. My, yeah, yeah, I ruined my appeals, didn't I? I'm sitting there after all the solitude of not being allowed to speak in my cell, and my first appellate attorney files my appeals and the state Supreme Court sends my case back to the trial court for all of the missing evidence. 
You see, the original man described by witnesses as possibly committing the crime was said to be between five foot four and five foot seven. And I'm over six feet, six foot two. So this person was clearly not me with uh, long, black, greasy hair, and I have blonde hair. All those witness statements, all statements prior to my arrest were missing. So, 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 so you, so happy you, to go oh, to court. you absolutely you're so happy to get an appeals to get to court. Yeah, my mom is at my lawyer's office. My dad is there with her. They're talking about, look, this is a possibility. They can grant him a new trial now mm-hmm. at the court trial. We can get this going. We can have a fairer trial that'll last longer than three days. I'm excited. I get in the car with the two sheriffs. I begin. This is in 1985. Now you've just spent. You've already spent three years in jail. So this is 1985. I, and you're yeah. on your way with these two guys who who you describe as being kind of older, friendly type prison officers. The best job in the office was going up and picking up prisoners and driving them back. You get yeah. double pay. You get all the benefits. So, yeah, I had two lovely guys, man. We were talking about the sports in the Philadelphia area, people that were down in the county jail. It was a very... A very nice conversation between these men. I was never a trouble to the sheriffs. They weren't my problem. You know what I mean? I never disrespected them. They bought me a soda. Mm -hmm. We stopped at a gas station five and a half hours later. To have a pee. It is February 15th, 1985, the coldest day of the year, sub-zero temperatures. And when I get out of the car with them, we run 20 yards to go to use a urinal. Now I, I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking to myself, and I'm sorry for interrupting you all the time, but I'm thinking about I have this vision in my head because the way you're describing the story is incredible. But I have a, a vision of myself, you know, when you hear of people in your situation who is, you know, on a death sentence, that when you're being brought from place to place, you're going to be chained to somebody or you're going to be cuffed to somebody. But you, you weren't. No, I was cuffed by myself in the back of the cage. Yeah, and uh, they were double locked, and it was two on one, and they were both armed. And I was a 23-year-old kid who hadn't given him any trouble. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was very polite and respectful. And it's, it's amazing what unfolded because of two factors. While I was in the urinal, one officer stood at the outside door watching me. So I didn't do anything. And he's holding, and the, door. Partner, he's holding the door open. He has his hand on top of the door and he's holding the door open. Yeah. Right. And his partner goes back to the car and has a cigarette. Now, I standing there using the urinal and my eyeglasses fog up. Anybody wearing eyeglasses knows what it's like to come in from the cold, stand in a warm thing. And then your face gets that little fogginess around the eyeglasses. So I had that thing where I was trying to look through the top of the eyeglasses in the open area between my eyebrow and the eyeglasses. As I head back under the arm of the man holding the door, I don't notice it, but he's now listened to me urinating. He has to go to the toilet very urgently. Yeah, he has to go have a pee. Yeah. Right. He lets me go. He lets me go back to the car, but he doesn't yell to his partner or anything. He just goes rushing into the toilet. His partner had his head turned. As I come up to him, it's now 6 o'clock almost at night, and it's pitch black, and he sees me running at him. He pulls out the firearm, and bam, first shot. Because he right thought, because he face. couldn't, because he couldn't see his partner, he thought you had attacked his partner or done something to his, his partner. Testimony, yeah. His testimony later on was: I turned and I saw Nick Yaris coming at me. I thought he had overpowered or killed my partner. I pulled out the gun, and it went off. I thought I was in better control, 
the second shot, I admit, was a direct try to try and shoot Nick. So he fired two shots at me, and I went down on my hands and ripped my hands off because I was wearing handcuffs, and you can't run in them. I ended up running in a square so that I ended up making three right turns until I was right back behind their car, laying on the ground behind them by about 30 yards. And these two sheriffs were screaming at each other about the incident and who was more in trouble and all that. And I wanted to get up. I did. But I started throwing up. And then I started thinking, like, in my head, I know it's crazy, but I was thinking, was this all done to make me do this? And if so, is this all going to be like my end? So I took my eyeglasses off and I picked my handcuffs and I backed away. And then I saw a building that was a police building. I hid behind there. But someone saw me and then the police helicopter came and chased me for four more hours, man. It was brutal. And you hid. You hid behind. You There was some grass or high grass or, and you, you hid there. And then, and what? I mean, I know you went looking to steal a car. Uh, but you yeah, could, I you, you actually could... walked on broken feet. Uh, yeah. My feet were torn up because I had prison shoes on. Um, all I had on was a pair of prison shoes, prison trousers, and a, and a prison work shirt. And it was freezing cold, and my feet had been in water from hiding behind one of the buildings, and they split open. Man, it's like gory to describe, but I could only take three steps at a time before I had to rest. But I did that for five miles until I got to Fraser, Pennsylvania, and I found a 1965 green Mustang. I got into the car, and I found a screwdriver, and I started the car. I drove to Darby, Pennsylvania, where I found some coins in the car, and I called the sister of mine, who had just gotten a new house. I figured the police didn't know her address yet mm-hmm. or hadn't gotten around to that. So I went over there, and she gave me some bandages and a small amount of money and sent me on my way, and I drove to New York City and got a Flophouse hotel room for $14 and started to heal. And it was one of the most terrifying times a 24-year-old man could ever experience when everyone's looking for you. Well, you actually you were on the FBI's most wanted list at this stage. Yeah, Muammar Gaddafi was above me. You know, mm. it was like that kind of surreal realness. Like, you can't imagine having over 200 police officers with ATVs and dogs and a helicopter chase you for five miles and you rip your body to shreds through the woodlands because I didn't care what the branch did to me. I ran. I knew I was going to get injured, but I ran. And, and, I, and, I how, and how long did you last? I mean, you went into this hotel. You knew everybody was yeah. looking for you, so you couldn't even really go out, could you? Because you knew you were... No, I, mean, I had to wait a few days, and then it, it's strange. I was in the, in the West End in New York City, and I looked in the window, and I saw myself on the news, and I knew I had to change. And just a few doors down, I saw this couple who had a hair salon, two gentlemen, and they were really nice-looking people, you know? Mm-hmm. So I burst into the room of their uh, uh, front um, business there, and I said, hey, can you guys help me? My boyfriend's beating me up, and I, I, I know he's going to kill me. I have to change my hair. And they took me into their studio, and they cleaned me up, and they changed my hair, and they dyed it and gave me a perm. And I walked. They even went and got a friend of theirs who was an optometrist and got me new eyeglasses made and didn't charge me anything 
amazing. Like you can't, I know, I don't even, I, like, I can't even describe how silly it was the notion that I had that I would go in there and pretend that my boyfriend was attacking me. Could this gay couple help me? And they did. And then I, I went out that night and I stole a man's wallet and I went to Florida on his credit card. And I had every intention of going out of the country if I could possibly run. And did you really think you were going to get away with it? Did you think you were going to, you know, be able to stay undercover where nobody would ever spot you? Or, you you know, I mean, if you, I'm surely you, you thought to yourself, well, if anything happens to me, I end up in a hospital, they're going to realize who I am. No, if it I get goes it. crazy, though. It's not even like, uh, I, so it, it got so weird that I went out on dates with girls. I was living down in Florida and... I'm out for 20-some days overall before I turn myself in, but, like, I went out on a date with a girl named Vicky. I went to her house, had dinner, was nice to her mom. I wanted to feel normal. It was all so crazy in my head. Like, I can't explain why you would want something normal when everything has been taken from you, but that's what I did. But you had, and a, you had, a, you so had everything but a normal life at this stage. So, I mean, this yeah. is... Uh, but, but I know. And I, at what point is, did you say, this is? I can't do this, I can't keep this pretense up, I've got to hand myself I was, in. I was sitting in Fort Lauderdale and there was an Army-Navy store across the road. There was a big yellow inflatable raft and I was going to go in the store and buy it. And then I was going to fill it up with a cooler of all my favorite treats. And I was going to go out into the shipping lanes out off of the coast of Florida and I was going to have one last amazing sunset wait and cut my wrist and wait for the sharks to come. And then just before they came, I would stab the inflatable and shoot myself in the head and be gone, man. So, you had, so you had a plan. You had, you had a plan had to a plan. end it. I was never going to be in cuffs again for something I didn't do. And then I thought, that's the most selfish, cowardly act I can do because that leaves my family holding the bag. That leaves my brothers to suffer. That leaves everyone. So I stood up and I said, I'm going back, man. I called my father, and he called the FBI, and they told him where I was, and I went back. And Florida gave me an additional 35 years and told me, you'll never get out now. You have 105 years of de uh, sentences, plus you're being taken back to Pennsylvania to be executed. So I spent seven months in Florida's death row next to Ted Bundy before they shipped me back. And what was it like being in prison with serial killers? Ted Bundy, of course, one of the most prolific and most famous serial killers. What was it like, you know, speaking to these individuals, talking to these individuals? I, I tried not to interact with them because they're the most self-centered, opinionated assholes you could ever meet. Teddy had a disdain for everyone. They were bugs to him. Human lives were bugs to him, man. I was around a man named Schrader who did some horrible things, and I ran afoul of him because I humiliated him by pointing out law points that he didn't know. I had a man try to stalk me and murder me for three years only for the fact that I was a representative of what he seen as a trophy. I had to live with these people. They're not glamorous and, and suave and hot and attractive, these are full-on beasts who come out of nowhere and attack the weakest amongst us. And at that point, I mean, you obviously realize at that stage the game is up. No matter whether I'm innocent or guilty, I'm either going to die in jail or I'm going to get the chair. Yeah, I'm done. 
because at this stage you, you, just, you just ruined your appeal the, the, the appeal that you'd spent yeah. so long trying to get you just ruined that oh yeah and I had a treat waiting for me back on death row in Pennsylvania called a four minute beating that I had to endure so for months man I didn't talk to anybody I didn't come out of my cell they broke my teeth they shattered my face they broke the transverse bone in my back they left so many welts on my body, man, that I pissed blood for months, man. It's a shame they beat me like you wouldn't believe, man. Well, well, well listen, Nick, I, I, was, want you to, I want you to hold that thought for a second, Nick. I've got to take a quick break, all right? Um, sure, but I know no everybody. Problem, I, I know people are listening, and and they want to know how you. Ended I'm very up in, grateful to everyone listening. Go on, sir. No, no, no. I, w- I I want them to hear how you ended up back in the situation you're in now, and a much better human being. Uh, and I want to. Uh, we want to find out exactly how you ended up in that situation. But stay there, please. I'm speaking to Nick Yaris, who spent 22 years in death row, escaped from prison, as you heard already, just to make sure that he didn't get out of jail, uh, because yeah, at that stage he had some appeals coming up, which could have gave him a better opportunity earlier on in his uh, career in jail. But because of that escape, he now ended up in Florida and going back to Pennsylvania to death row again, waiting for the electric chair. Nick, at this stage, Nick, and, and once again, thank you very much indeed for describing the story so well, because so many people listening at the moment, you, you're, you're out of Florida, you're back in Pennsylvania, you've got a, this four-minute beaten by prison officers who were also you know, probably embarrassed by the fact that you escaped as well. I mean, they, they obviously wanted to, for their colleagues, they obviously wanted to make up lost time. So you faced... Another, God knows how many years in jail or the electric chair and the electric chair. So, I mean, what was it like? What was that feeling like then knowing that, look, I'm doomed. Whatever chance I had of getting out, I'm finished. I was 24 years old. My parents came to see me. I sat them down and I told them what happened to me when I was a little boy. My mom felt such relief that it wasn't her that put me on death. I know how parents think. It's crazy. My dad looked at me and he wanted to go kill the man. I said, don't bother. Don't get angry. It's over. I have to live with this. So they said, what are you going to do? I said, Pop, I'm going to finish my education. I've been working on the dictionary for two years and I'm doing really well with it. And I want to take these correspondence courses and begin educating myself formally. And he looked at me and said, that's your only answer. I said, I think I have an answer, but no one's going to understand it. And I couldn't tell them. So I went back that day. I went back to my cell. And I took all the pictures off the wall. And uh, I had one picture of myself when I was 17 years old on the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania. And I caught this big fish. It was like a 30-pound carp. And I had it held up with one arm. And this look on my young face was just beaming and I made, I made a decision now I decided I was going to look at that picture and I was going to learn how to politely speak to that person in the hopes that he could get me out of here and if he couldn't at least he would give me the fortitude so that on the day they executed me I wouldn't embarrass myself by how I spoke so I began every day speaking quietly and politely to myself in the hopes that I could, on my execution day, be able to tell who I was to myself in front of these people. And did did you have hope at that stage still that you could avoid execution? No, I was done. 
he felt there was just no hope. I'm not going to get another appeal. I'm not. I mean, was, was, was there a, I, I ruined, at that stage, I was ruined, there an attempt yeah. even to get another appeal? Well, the appeal was sent forward, but it was squashed. They ignored all kind of law. Mrs. Craig was abducted in the state of Delaware, but I was sentenced to death for that crime in the state of Pennsylvania. Corpus delecti law should have never allowed that, but I ruined it. I ran. I reacted. I paid for it physically, mentally, emotionally, and I was happy. Now, when I had no hope, I was okay. I finally had a chance to find out about life. I began reading all the world's religions. I decided I wanted to read all the books that I could. I amassed a ledger and began. I was so deep into it that when I got a visit one day from these people who were working to shut down the hellhole that I lived in, I was asleep. I woke up in the middle of the day and they brought me out and there was two women, Pamela and Jackie. And they started asking me all these questions about the horror show that I lived with, men being assaulted and thrown off the tears by the guards or how we were made to gladiator against each other in the cages for their amusement. And I refused to complain. I said, it doesn't matter where I'm at. We're all living under a death sentence. We just have to get on with this. And this woman looked at me like she couldn't believe that I wouldn't complain. And I told her, why do that to myself? I know where I am. I'm trying to make the best of it because of a promise I made to my mother. Well, she left that day with Pamela, but she came back the next week and the next week and the next week, and she wouldn't leave me alone. She wanted to know why I wasn't ashamed, why I wouldn't protest my innocence, why I wouldn't tell her anything about my case or anything. And I told her that I gave up telling people I was innocent because I... Did nobody no believe one, you? Well, not only that. Everyone was saying it beside me, and it was making course, me angry yeah. for the men who truly were. So I told her I made a vow that I wouldn't tell people I was innocent, and she'd have to excuse that. And I didn't feel like arguing with people no more. So I'm sitting there in my cell, and another newspaper arrives. But this time it's not about some missing murder, and I'm not about to make up a lie. I'm about to tell the truth to the whole world. In February of 1988, I became the very first man on death row to seek DNA testing because of that article that I read that day describing the new science of DNA and how Sir Alec Jeffries from the United Kingdom had used his DNA science to solve the Colin Pitchford murder in Leicestershire. By him going around and collecting the blood samples of the villagers around this murder and identifying that blood to that person who raped and killed a girl, Colin Pitchfork was the original person persecuted by DNA, and he was my key to freedom. I had no idea that when I filed my application in February of 1988 to prove my innocence with DNA science, that it would all go to hell and that I would be tortured for the next 15 years. And do they accept your application? What sort of response did you get to that original application when this science, of course, was extremely new? What sort of, what sort of response did you get? I was told that they threw away all the material they sent me to death row. I said, how can you throw away all the evidence from a rape homicide case? They said, oops, it's gone. I said, it's funny how it's all gone when I want to prove to you the very evidence that you say sent me to death row. 
is not real. So, um, can I ask, by the way, in, rela- in relation to that evidence, because my curiosity is getting me now, the blood sample, of course, that you were convicted on, where did that, where did that come from? The, the victim obviously had this blood on her. Right. So at the time of her uh, body being found by two young boys in the snow the day after her crime was committed, they found spermatozoa all in her underwear, and they took swabs during the autopsy where she had recent intercourse as well from the rape. So they had plenty of samples. In fact, some were sent off to a laboratory in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, to do the serology work to determine that the killer had B positive blood grouping. That's what saved me. So, so, so you were looking moment. for that? You were looking for these to, to make oh, sure they, they kept these samples. Yeah, I wrote the Muhammad Tahir was the director of the laboratory. I wrote him a letter and I said, "Dear sir, you did work in the Linda May Craig homicide. I'm sitting on death row for it. Did you keep any samples? All I want you to do is answer if you did, because then I can have it tested for DNA." He wrote me back. He said, "This is fantastic. I've been reading about this new science, and I'm so hopeful that yes." I have protected slides. I have the slides that I use to prove your guilt. Two detectives went up to his office and stole those slides. And for three years, I fought an unending battle to get those slides turned over to the coroner's office for protection. The court refused. When they were finally handed over, there was nothing left on the slides. And I knew they were trying to murder me, man. So how did you eventually... Um, well, before we get to that, you said you spent 16 years of torture as well. In that 16 years, because here we, here was you now in a situation where maybe you could be able to prove your innocence. Um, and then they, they then started to give you a hard time in jail. Yeah but, yeah, but see, I was protected because by then I fell in love with Jackie, man. And for a 27-year-old man, to have a woman finally teach him how to be a man in all these respectful and introvertedly beautiful ways to pull out things. I couldn't believe that someone would look at me and fancy me after what they did to me. And how, often, how often was she visiting you? Every month, five days. Uh, every month I was allowed six visiting days. And she would try and drive up twice a month and stay at a hotel and see me over the course of three days, twice a month, driving 225 miles from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to the mountains of Pennsylvania to Huntington was a real task. And she worked around all these juveniles in the mm-hmm. healthcare industry. And she was a really amazing person to them. But you had somebody now on the outside who could help you because up to that point, yeah, they didn't. she tracked down. She tracked down laboratories. I wrote to Joseph Wamba, the author of The Blooding. He gave me Sir Alec Jeffries' address in England, and I became pen pals with Sir Alec Jeffries for 12 years. He taught me all of the new advancements, and he begged me. This is crazy. Begged me to stay alive so he could help the new advancements of mitochondrial DNA. I told him I'd do the best I could. So when was the turning point? When was that point when the samples became available, when you could prove your innocence? When was that point? 
I had a hearing set up for the destruction of evidence, and they called the clerk out of retirement from the courthouse who had processed the original evidence. My mother testified at this hearing that the man tried to give her a box at the conclusion of the trial marked Yaris, my last name, Y-A-R-R-I-S. But inside of this box was bloody clothing that obviously belonged to the victim. My mother told them how she recoiled in horror and how this was a terrible moment for her never to forget. The clerk was then brought in to testify and he confirmed the moment before the court and then had a light bulb moment where he remembered where he stashed the box. They found inside the box the victim's clothing with sperm. They found the killer's gloves that were left in the car that was left locked with the interior lights on. So they had all of this evidence in 1995, and I thought it wouldn't be much longer. But the crazy thing is, the evidence was packaged after it was sent to a laboratory and extracted from the clothing. And when it was shipped to California to be done by Dr. Edward Blake, who famously did all of the DNA work in the O.J. Simpson case, the packaging broke open in transit, and we lost all of the evidence. Oh, the saddest moment. This is just one. It's moment. just one piece of bad news after another, really, wasn't it? Well, it was made worse because of two factors. By then, they finally shut down Huntington, but they put me in a prison worse than that. I just recently wrote a book called Monsters and Mad Men, describing it because it was such a big story that I kept it secret. But sad to say, I was put through hell on three levels. The woman who I was in love with and had married by then in a prison ceremony looked at me and said, I can't go on. I know I promised to walk you to the gallows and be there and hold your hand when they executed you. But this is too hard. I have to go. So I wrote her a beautiful love letter and I said goodbye. You understood. Then, you understood that she yeah, couldn't do it. I got it. And I gave her mercy. I said, you know, it's not your sentence mine. And so I went through a, a really bleak period because my health started failing and I couldn't understand how I went from like 15 stone all the way down and I lost like 30 pounds in like two and a half months and I was really, really sick. And I found out from the other men around me who began dying of the same illness that I was infected with a very viral strain of hepatitis C. And when a man named Dale Carter, convicted of rape and murder, no less, was being tortured by the nurses because the impacted bile in his stomach was cruciating. The pain was so bad that they laughed at him. So I decided that I would sign up for treatment. And they gave me these terrible medications, interferon and such. And they ended up blinding me with the toxicity of it to the point that I couldn't take the meds no more and I was shutting down. So... That was it for me, man. I said enough. I had read. You actually felt like you, were, you, you weren't even going to make it to the chair at this stage. Yeah, so I figured, why, why do that? Like I'm not having these people laugh at me and taunt me while I'm dying in agony of my impacted bile. So no, sir. I said, you know what? I'm hard. I'm harder than life. In fact, watch this. I have something none of these people have. I have power. I am sentenced to die. I have the right as a death row prisoner to make them kill me. Did so you did you know, by the way, at that stage, 
You, I don't know what year. What year are we at now? What year is this? We're we're at two thousand and two. Okay. By and, now, I've, I I by now I helped a friend of mine mm-hmm. do exactly what I was doing. And did you know? And that's, did you know what day you were going to be? Ex- did they, when you're on debt row? What I'm trying to say is, when you're on debt row, do you have any indication of when the time is going right. to be that you're walking to the chair? I yeah, because I witnessed the deaths of Keith Zettelmeyer and. Uh, Mosley and Gary Heidnick, I knew that the process takes over quite quickly because there's, there was at that time so many people trying valiantly to keep the death penalty alive in Pennsylvania. So from the time that the judge acknowledged my lo- my letter, I had about 60 days left. That was it. Okay, well, do, do me a favor, Nick. i got to take another break, but it's an intriguing story, and I want to hear the rest of it, okay? We're speaking to Nick Yaris, who spent 22 years on debt row for a crime that he didn't commit. Okay, so here you are. You've got roughly 60 days. You work out. You've got 60 days to go before you're going to be sitting in that chair, and your life is going to be ended. So what, what was the turning point then where we suddenly find out that Nick Yaris is not a murderer, is not a rapist, and didn't do this horrible crime? In February of 2003, the DNA from inside the killer's gloves came back. The prosecutor said that because they hid the gloves from my trial, that no evidence garnered from these gloves should be allowed. The court thought that was the most ridiculous answer in the world. He looked at me and said, look, we have one last series of tests to go. You can have your wish and ignore all this and be executed. That's your right. But if you want, you can go forward with these last tests that will consume all remaining evidence, and that's it. You have nothing left. So ignoring the fact that they already had evidence that proved my innocence, I sat and I waited. And in July of 2003, more DNA tests came out from the underwear, from the sperm, and the fingernail clippings that were found in an envelope by the clerk yielded all the DNA from unknown male number one or unknown male number two, who also left sperm. None of this evidence matched me. And on July 1st, my lawyer finally confessed to me that for the past seven years, he really did think I was guilty and he was sorry. I was so mortified that I hung up on from him And I called my mother in Philadelphia. I said, Mom, the DNA test finally came back and it proves me innocent. She goes, oh, my God. Thank God. Can you hurry home? Your brother just had a seizure. He's laying at my feet. He's not doing well. So it was so horrifying to go through that moment that I broke down. And for the first time in 15 years, I cried, man. And what's the the process then? When, When suddenly you're being told... We now have DNA of the individuals responsible. We don't know who they are, but we know that it wasn't you. You're now an innocent man. What's the process? Do they just open the gates and let you straight out? I mean, or does it take days? No. Does it take a week? First, they tried to break me. They took me out of death row and put me in an isolation shell on a, a cell over on the mental ward where I would have nothing in my cell but a, a cardboard um, milk carton. And when I questioned them about the logic behind doing this to someone who's innocent, they said, yes, but Mr. Yaris, after the beatings we've given you, after the things that you've experienced in the hardest conditions, 
We know that as soon as we open this door, you're going to kill one of us. There's no way that any of us can believe that after what we did to you, that you're not angry. So I told him, you might want to think about the fact that you're the one that did all that to me, and I haven't done any of it back to you. Maybe that's something you, you have to live with. So they kept me in isolation for the last seven months. I sat there, and I realized I had a duty. You see, my mother, the week that I tried to hang myself at the age of 20, asked me, please, be something worthy of coming home. So I did. I sat there and I started to dream of any kind of possible life I could have for myself. I knew I was still ill and I would have to go on a liver transplant just to try and live, but I was willing. I was willing to try. And yet, at the very end, they even botched my release. On my very last day, they took me out of my cell at 8.30 in the morning and said goodbye to me and they put me in a van and they drove me up to the last gates. Then they turned the van around and backed it up. And they said that paperwork wasn't ready. Oh, God. So I had an anticlimactic moment that led to one of the most beautiful ever. You see, I wasn't going to be driven out of the prison later on that day because the press started getting angry. There were so many of them outside. They were told I was coming out that gate. They saw me in the van. They couldn't understand what was going on. It's like psychological torture. Yeah. So about 1 o'clock that day, they finally got themselves together, and they let me out. I remember, as I walked up towards my father, I could see the damage that this had all done to him. So, I made sure that as he walked up to me, that I gave him his grace by making the joke with him, and he lit up. And my mother, oh my God, it was the first time I had been held in 14 years. Because they took all of our death row visitations. And she was so alive in my arms that I forgave. I knew I was wrong in my life. Mm -hmm. So how was I to ever say a negative word? As I walked up to the media surrounding the prison, I told them about two innocent men in the prison behind me, that my ordeal was over and I needed someone to come help my friends. And I wouldn't say nothing negative and I walked away. It blew them away. So here you are, Nick Yaris, a free man. The world is 22 years older. Everything has changed. What was, I mean, what's that like to be put into a cell for 22 years and come out to a completely different world? Because we know how quick the world changes these days. To come out to a completely different world where there's mobile phones, internet, all sorts of things that you aren't familiar with. It was a whole new world, new cars, roads that you weren't familiar with. The landscape had probably changed somewhat. The city had changed. What would, that must have been extraordinary. Imagine growing up in southwest Philadelphia that was 86% white, and then you come home and it's 13% white and everybody's gone. Mm -hmm. All remember, the people you remember, knew had changed. The whole neighborhood Everybody was gone. Yeah, they had white flight from the major cities, and everybody in the neighborhood was gone, man. Everybody that I grew up around spoke differently and I articulated words and they looked at me strange and I didn't recognize everyone and I was so sick initially that all I could do was eat my mother's soup and walk. And I had terrible times where 
people would see me out walking late at night and they would think I was a stranger and I would be accosted by drug dealers who thought I was out to take over their neighborhood and they were afraid of me. They, they actually were fearful of me even though all I was doing was trying to walk. And it, it, it really fascinated me that I knew I was Edmond Dantes in one singular way. Instead of being given a map by an old man in the cell and I go seek my treasure. Those 9,000 books that I read, they were going to come in handy. That beautiful, articulated manner that I had developed for myself would serve me well. And did you, did, you want to, did you want to sit down before this all went out of your head, these feelings and how you felt and this whole 22 years, which was all locked up inside your mind? You wanted to sit down, I need to get that down on paper. No, even more... Yeah, and that's why I wrote Seven Days to Live, the book that's on my website now. Mm-hmm. But also, more importantly, you know, like I knew I became a beautiful man for my torment. And see, that's what makes us beautiful in life is our pain and our suffering because we have empathy for others. And I knew that was my healing. The one thing that made me truly dangerous in pe- prison was I cared for other men. I wrote letters for their lawyers and to their families, and I helped them, and I cared for them because I wanted to keep a hold of my humanity. This made me very dangerous to the administration who didn't understand why so many men who were condemned to death loved me so much that they would go on a hunger strike when I was tormented. But that power of knowledge of myself gave me this inspiration to go fight for my friends. So within only 10 months of my release, I stood in Parliament in London and spoke before a combined session of the lower house. I then went and followed it with a speech before the Ligue des Nationales in France. Sweden followed that. I went on and spoke in Italy. With only a few months, I had governments around the world listening to my proposals of an economic embargo against my former tormentors because I wanted to use my wit and not my fist to come back at them. I wanted to help my friends who were sitting on death row, and I told every government I spoke before their names. I made them come alive in places like Oxford and Cambridge, and I moved to the United Kingdom after only being out a short time because, I'm sorry, I fell in love with those green islands, and it's been such a lovely treat Mm -hmm. that for 12 years I lived and loved every part of it, from Wales to the Brecon Beacons to Dublin to on down to, uh, on up to Scotland and the Fringe Festival. I've enjoyed so much of it. And, and that was I, my and, and Nick, out of all the people that you met who were on debt row, or people who you met who may have been executed as well, how many of those people do you believe actually were innocent people? Do you believe most of them were actually guilty? Well, when I was in death row in Florida, I was next to Jesse Trefero. Sonny Jacobs is a UK resident, and her and Peter Pringle have the Sunny Center over there in Ireland. I met her husband. This is eerie. I met her husband while I was on death row, and he befriended me. And I remember how he wore a Buddhist ring. And I told Sonny when I got out, and she got out, when we met in London, I told her the story of meeting Jesse down there and knowing him. And it was a rare treat that we knew about that ring that was on his hand. So, yeah, I know about him and about four other men who were put to death that were actually literally innocent, and it doesn't mean a goddamn thing to no one. 
I mean, there has been a lot of evidence that the death penalty serves absolutely no purpose and doesn't discourage crime. Uh, actually, in some of the states where they have the death penalty, homicides are actually higher and crime rates are higher than they are in many of the states that don't have the death penalty. So the suggestion that it encourage, uh, discourages crime probably isn't well, true. Well, look at the abuse alone that were done to the Irish people with the death penalty men. I mean, putting people to death for political reasons and, and thoughts. And, and I'm sorry, but we forget our history. I know this much. People change. And the only way that we can be better than someone else is not to kill. And I, I know a lot of people don't get that. But I think of it in this term. So when I do- close my eyes, yeah. when oh. I close my eyes and think about it, I know I can't put my own children or someone I truly love to the death penalty. I can't go down to the prosecutor's office and demand that they be put to death if they commit a crime. My heart wouldn't allow that because that's not what I'm taught. So how can I go out and cry for the same thing for someone else's child? So what's Nick doing now? What's Nick Yaris doing now? I go around speaking. I have an opportunity to actually come back to the United Kingdom. Hopefully that'll work out. I have a brand new opportunity for anyone who wants to make a documentary. I want to make a new documentary that's going to be really cool. Mm-hmm. I'm working on a major motion picture, and right now I've made all these books and downloads available from nickharris.org, so I have many more stories that really aren't even covered here. Okay, a lot, of the, a lot of the stuff you talked to us today, tonight about would be in the book Seven Days to Live. Um, yeah, but it wouldn't be in Monsters and Mad Men. And the kindness approach was my answer to everyone who wanted to know why I'm not angry. That's see, and, that's what everybody wants and, to know. Everybody wants to know why you don't hold resentment. I know the number one question. Yeah, it was the number one question. Everybody says, oh, my God, how come you're not angry? And I started teaching people that it all went to my origins of it are it's called neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is a human being's ability to create healing within themselves by positive interactions and positive things that they do with other human beings. But, 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 the by the way, Annette wants to know, she's just texting, and wants to know, uh, <clears throat> Niall, did he get any help from the government to resettle into the community and get a job? Did, no. Did, I mean, did I the state told, help you? Yeah. No, because I wasn't uh, on the parole system. I was given no health care, no job treatment. I got my health back by a miraculous gift. I got no treatment, but I have zero hep C, and I've been clear since the last of 2004. So I and did you get? Blessed. Did you get compensated by the state? I'm just no. There's no compensation laws in Pennsylvania. I had to go through an arduous lawsuit that ended up being folly anyway, because the the funds that came from that ended up being taken from me mostly anyway. Okay. It was a terrible, that's why I try to tell people, it's hard to imagine everything that you've heard being surpassed by the 15 years of my freedom, but I tell the truth, the 15 years of my freedom have been harder than all of my days on death row. Nick, it's an astonishing story, and one that I pe- think people will want to read more about. The books are called Seven Days to Live, My Journey Through Her Eyes, Monsters and Mad Men, The Kindest Approach. And if you want to, you can go to nickyaris.org. Uh, you can get all the books there, or you can pick them up on Amazon, or probably wherever you want to pick them up, but they're all available, or you can read Nick's story there on his website as well. Nick, it's incredible to listen to you. It's not just incredible to hear the story, but it's incredible to hear you tell the story. 
Oh, I'd love to take you on a journey with me and show you different parts of America uh, vocally. Go and, and visit different places and really describe them for you. And I, I, I want to take a moment. I know I've talked a lot about myself, but... No, it, it's intriguing. Whoever, it's intriguing to listen to, Nick. And, and, no, but to, to whoever is now listening, and you're going through that part of your night where the last vestiges of the day are still lingering and you're suffering from thoughts don't do that. Like, if in your heart you're a good person, then don't torment yourself with things that have befallen you or have hurt you because that's what made you beautiful enough to listen. You shared this program with Neil and his staff and I because you really are that person who has the empathy in life to care for someone else. And that makes me so admire you. I don't know your face. I don't know what you're doing as you sit there and listen or you're reclining in bed or you're driving. But wherever you are in life, because I share your blood of my kin, I truly am grateful this night of being in Dublin and on the airwaves to tell you, man, I don't care what you face. Just be that person that you know yourself to be and it'll be okay. <laughs> 